This is Sparks and Wiry Cries podcast. I'm your host, Martha Gu. Erica is unfortunately unable to be with us today, but she should be back for the next one. We just listened to the luminous soprano voice of Susanna Phillips and pianist Donald Berman performing the song Thursday. It's the first song in composer Scott Wheeler's song cycle, Wasting the Night, on poetry by Edna St. Vincent Millay. We are thrilled to be welcoming Scott Wheeler to the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for letting me barge into your life and uh, your apartment for the interview. <laughs> That's fun. Um, before we begin, I'd love to just sing your praises a little bit. Uh, you were born in D.C., studied at Amherst College, New England Conservatory, and Brandeis University. I'm assuming that's doctorate, that's master's, undergrad, uh, or the reverse. Yes, yeah, the other yeah. way around, right. Uh, and you also studied privately with Virgil Thompson? Yes, I did, Very cool. here in New York. Um, you uh, just handed in a commission uh, to the Met Opera uh, right. and Lincoln Center Theatre. That's right. Uh, but you've also been commissioned by uh, groups like the Mirror Visions Ensemble, the Marilyn Horn Foundation, Concert Artists Guild, there's tons and tons. You've also won awards and commissions uh, from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Kusevitsky Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, Tanglewood, it just goes on and on. Uh, I think suffice to say, everybody mm -hmm. loves you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So the recording that we are listening to comes from uh, a Noxos uh, recording called Wasting the Night, and it features the singing of four very fine singers, Susanna Phillips, of course, uh, who we just heard, but also Joe Kaiser, Krista River, and uh, William Sharp, all with the same pianist, Donald Berman. I'd like to sort of start you off uh, sort of more gener generally. Can you talk to us a bit about what your compositional process is like? Well, in songs, of course, you always start with a text. Um, often, you start with a commission, that is, somebody who wants to sing the song. And in the case of Wasting the Night, that was certainly the case. It was actually a program by a modern music ensemble called Alia Three in Boston, based at Boston University. And they were doing an evening of cabaret songs. And they wanted to do Kurt Weill and other older cabaret material and commission some new ones. So they asked me about it. And I thought, well, I don't know what to do about the Kurt Weill kind of thing. My, my music doesn't feel like that. I, I love Kurt Weill's music, but somehow I couldn't find any text that would talk about how, you know, how boring it is to be a prostitute in Berlin or something. But I, I thought uh, <laughs> instead, maybe what, what we could do is, is look at texts the, the reason I liked the Malay is that they felt much like a kind of American cabaret that I associate with Mabel Mercer and Blossom Deary. These people who are not really singer-singers, you don't go to Mabel Mercer or Blossom Deary to hear the most beautiful notes, but to hear the most interesting words and the most uh, nuanced, somewhat sardonic view of love done in an intimate theatrical setting. And I said, well, that's cabaret that I could get in, in, involved with. And that's why, as you hear on Thursday, uh, the sort of sardonic quality of, of the love affair there. Yeah. So the process in this case came from, first of all, it was gonna be cabaret. So second, I found the Malay. And then I said, all right, but what kind of accompaniment 
And I was really thinking about my teacher, Virgil Thompson, in a way, and some of the most, what he would call functional accompaniments, minimal, not in the sense of repetition, but in the sense of as few notes as possible. And as a accompanist of singers myself in daily life and teaching and, and just general coaching, I often find myself reducing what I'm doing so that I can better listen to the singer. I reduce what I'm doing. I don't play all a lot of fills, a lot of fancy right hand stuff. I give them basically what's in the left that they need for their basic rhythm and harmony and highlight what they're doing so that I can hear in the studio and I can advise them on what I'm listening to. And that habit turned up in the way I handled the accompaniment writing for a song like this. So it's, it's uh, pretty sparse. Wonderful. So, but when you set text, do you ever think about what the poet would have liked or does it just become an entirely new piece or a well, new interpretation? Um, always hope the poet is going to, going to like it. I mean, in this case, it doesn't uh, matter, I guess. The poet, wasn't, the, the poet wasn't around. I had a, uh, cut this if you like, but, but uh, I've got a great anecdote. I, I once spoke on the phone to Louise Gluck I wanted to set some poems of Louise Gluck, and I discussed the, my different ideas for them, and, and she was very noncommittal about what I'm doing, and I, I said, well, I want to make you happy, and she said, I've only been made happy once or twice in my life. <laughs> so I said, okay all right uh, we don't try to <laughs> we don't try to make poets happy what we're doing is we're translating their work into another language they're quite capable of reading their own works uh yeah, thank and you very much we are, we are capable of reading of reading their own works but once you set it to music you are turning it into something else just as thoroughly as any other artistic transformation of a play into a film of a film into an opera of, of yeah. so that it, it becomes something uh, of its own. What I do think is that I am more interested in poems that leave a little bit of space that don't require five readings before you know even basically what must be going on uh, that are puzzle poems in that way and many many modern poems are and that work a little bit that way even older poems do that there are John Donne poems that work like that are you have to keep well, the struggling. metaphors are so difficult yes yeah. so you have to really struggle to to get them so for a song it's nice to have one where the meaning is right out there on the surface this came up when i first started take, working with virgil as a teacher i immediately brought him an auden poem that i wanted to set and he said oh these young composers they always want to set auden i don't want you to set that and he handed me a bunch of lyrics, a volume of lyrics of 16th and 17th century English lyrics. And he said, the problem with the modern poets is they don't say what they mean. <laughs> and, and so, uh, uh, of course, he, he said Gertrude Stein. So oh, it wasn't like <laughs> yeah. he was against setting. And, and then Frank O'Hara and, and uh, Kenneth Cope. Well, did and he various, want you to start other, other things? But he wanted for beginning, yeah, exactly, for beginning songwriting, for looking at songwriting, let's have songs where we know what the lyric actually means. Well, that makes absolute sense to me. So I found that that, that was certainly also something very useful in this. And the, the Malay also uh, gave me a little bit of space uh, to try to create something like those songs that I love, which 
are songs by people like Cole Porter, uh, Rogers and Hart, uh, even modern things, the Beatles and Dylan, are often songs where if you hear them just instrumentally, they're okay. And if you read the lyric, well, it's kind of good, it's kind of interesting. But when you combine the two, it makes something, the synergy of the, the words and the music makes something that you is totally treasured, that these are things that I treasure more than almost anything else in musical life, even great, great musical accomplishments. Uh, so I like to think of songs in that way, that they make that little bit of synergy. Well, and I would say that, that the synergy actually makes the poem more understandable. I it would should, say so ideally. that if you if there were any issues to begin with, it should become easier then. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. And speaking of that, actually, in a, in a little bit uh, in a similar way, the next song in the cycle is called Recuerdo. It's I think maybe one of the better known poems by Malay, at least in I my think so. uh, remembrance. Um, it's in the anthology. Yeah. For I mean, for anybody who cares, uh, the word Recuerdo means something that is that. I guess, remembers the dead or comforts the living. How does this apply in the poem? This is a poem actually that just I struggled I with a bit. Yeah, I guess it means I remember, I but, but we often use that for... There are words that are related to it that, that have to do with remembrance of the dead, but I yeah, think... Yeah, you don't it, think I, that has anything to do with the poem? Uh, I couldn't find it anywhere, but it, so it. it puzzled me. I, it never occurred to me that, that it, it has to do with death. Uh, in any way, it's just, me it, it, to me, it's just a poem about remembering a high point in a love affair. Right. I think that makes much more sense. Thank you. <laughs> um, At least that's what I get from the poem itself. That the title yeah. may, it, it, that, that would I'd give a, that would give another twist to the poem, but it's not one that I engage the end, with. The end of, maybe the end of the affair was there? Well, she wrote this, the, the fact that it's called Remembrance. Uh, it, it applies. Uh, or the, the death of the, the affair. I don't the, know. The affair is definitely, the, this is definitely in the past for her. Yeah. This is, so, this, I mean, maybe a me metaphorically speaking, it could be. This isn't, I can't wait to see you again tomorrow and no, do not this at again. All. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, we actually have a recording of Edna St. Vincent Millay reading her work. Um, I'd love to just compare and contrast the two, if I may. Here she is reading Recuerdo, and we'll segue right into the performance by Susanna and Donald right afterwards. We were very tired. We were very merry. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. It was bare and bright and smelled like a stable. But we looked into a fire. We leaned across a table. We lay on a hilltop underneath the moon. And the whistles kept blowing, and the dawn came soon. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. And you ate an apple, and I ate a pear. From a dozen of each we had bought somewhere. And the sky went warm, and the wind came cold, and the sun rose dripping a bucket full of gold. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. We hailed, good morrow, mother, to a shawl-covered head and bought a morning paper, which neither of us read. And she wept, God bless you, 
for the apples and pears. And we gave her all our money but our subway fares. I think it's a pretty remarkable voice that Malay had. It's very interesting. I I had never heard it before. Uh, how British she sounds. She's she's American. Oh, born. she's absolutely American. Grew up in Maine. Yeah, I think. Yeah, uh, I would be surprised and not altogether pleased if a singer were to roll their R's on very as she does very <laughs> I know if you yeah if somebody, if somebody gave that interpretation gave that, to your gave song it that reading I, it would it would be a little strange but but uh, not bad 
number. Yeah. <laughs> not bad. I give I give her a seventy five percent. It's really interesting to <laughs> to hear it. Obviously, of course, she she hears her rhythmic structure so very clearly, and yeah. I, I I love that that structure of this poem. Yeah. What else about her poetry drew you to uh, to her, and how did you choose these particular poems? Well, I chose these poems because I liked them all. First of all, basically, I enjoyed reading them. I enjoyed kind of singing through them and imagining putting somebody up on stage, declaiming them or sharing them with an audience. And then naturally, they they fell into the range of the birth and death of a love affair, a little, a little five-part story. So that that was how they ended up getting organized. I had an early setting that I had tried of I Shall Forget You, which is the third one in this set. Um, I Shall Forget You Presently, my dear. And there's a particular line in it about lies, about if you entreat me with your loveliest lie, I shall respond to you with my favorite vow. It reminded me, actually, of a song by, of all people, Andre Previn. Uh, Andre Previn has a song called It's Good to Have You Near Again, and the lyric is written by his then-wife, Dory Previn. And it begins, it, it, in somehow a reference to the Malay, or it, maybe she didn't even know the Malay, she just did it. Uh, she said, it's good to have you near again. It's pointless to disguise how good it is to hear again your sweet, familiar lies. And I'm sure it must have been written for her husband, who said it to music. The recording that I heard, I've never seen it published, but I have a recording. I heard a recording of it years ago with Previn accompanying, believe it or not, Leontine Price. Anyway, so they did, she did an entire record of American pop type songs um, with, with him, and that song was on there. Anyway, to me, this is the kind of cabaret world that is a particularly useful, lovely way to think about art song as an intimate communication of a singer accompanied only by pianist with a chamber-sized audience, or I'm mm-hmm. quoting, of course. Oh. I think she grew up, I, I, I mean, I think she was a, a writer that was ahead of her time in many ways, and my guess it's because of her upbringing. She was raised by a single mother and not in great circumstances um and i think her mom was her mother was quite brave uh in that respect because she asked her husband to leave could Mm. you talk to us about your own personal influences as a composer and how they've affected uh i don't know style or anything about the way you write sure well i would say as far as especially about vocal music well, I wouldn't necessarily, not even just vocal music. First of all, uh, I grew up playing pop and jazz, like most composers in, in the United States of all generations. So every generation comes up and, and says, the thing about us is that we're really based on pop music. And I said, well, that was true of Ned Roram. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, uh, 80 years ago, uh, Aaron Copeland, even, uh, that was always true, all, all American composers, because of our culture. So certainly I, I came from that. So when I think about song, my earliest memories are probably Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald, all the great American repertoire of theirs from Gershwin, Harold Arlen, uh, Irving Berlin, all of those things. Then eventually I got into understanding something about Benjamin Britten 
and the art song tradition of America. But uh, the art song tradition of America uh, was somewhat mixed in, in some ways. There's a wonderful early article by Virgil Thompson, my teacher, about how American art song has a little problem recognizing the difference between a song and an aria. Uh, that they have a little bit of a tendency to get too dramatic. And he said that at one point, he, he complained, they all sing, no matter what the actual topic of, is of the song, of the poetry, it's all about love. In the and, grandest In sense. the grandest sort of sense. Do and you think that, that's true today? I'm not sure that that's no, true no, today. No, not nearly yeah. so much true today, but at that time, it was true. So I'm saying as far as my references, yeah. I don't go back to that much. I don't reach back to the art song stuff, except for these little oddities of Thompson and occasionally Copeland and a, a, a few of the others. I'm much, much happier once we get into Bill Bolcom. Oh, uh, yeah. There was a New York Festival program, New York Festival song program that alternated Bolcom and Bernstein for an entire evening. And Bolcom was invention for invention right in there with Bernstein. Oh, what a yeah. fabulous, fabulous in, inventor he was of that sort of thing. And of course, he understood the vernacular, understands the vernacular perfectly well all through, through all kinds of, of his writing. So there are various various ways to to look at that. I love Kurt Weill. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm also I'm also actually very much involved in, in what we think of as modern atonal avant-garde mm -hmm. music. Mm -hmm. uh, for 30 years or so, a little more than that, I directed a modern music group in Boston called Dinosaur Annex, conducted hundreds of premieres mm -hmm. of works of all sorts from 12-tone pieces. I conducted Milton Babbitt with Sandy Sylvan singing. Oh. Uh, I conducted uh, Donna Tony and Boulez and minimalists, Randy Wolf, Eve Baglarian, uh, Carter, uh, the range oh, of, of music that's out there. And I find it interesting that you have, the way that you reach back is, is probably maybe the previous generation. You, did, you, did you ever go back even to the beginning of it? Did you ever you know, fall in love with Schubert before you, or something like that? No, Schubert were... came, came later. Yeah. Schubert uh, it certainly came later. And when I first started out, I loved Bach. And I love Stravinsky and yeah. Bartok. And the romantics I grew into, yeah. uh, one at a time and oddly. Uh, the first romantic I, I saw as somebody who I really, really could identify with was Berlioz. Mm. Um, mm. And the, of all things, the Te Deum. I, I got totally hooked on. And uh, then eventually Verdi came in in a major way, and I now listen to Verdi constantly, and then Wagner. Uh, some Wagner early of the instrumental works, the preludes and things, but the opera's not till later on, and now they're, they're wonderful, wonderful. Uh, now Puccini is great by me. At that time, I had no interest. I, I just didn't even know what to, to make of it. <laughs> even Debussy, I didn't have a, don't know too much what to make of it until I finally figured out in Iberia and that it's actually better than the Rite of Spring in many ways <laughs> and just as modern. So, um, yeah, I think that's pretty common with American composers too because with... To look nearer to themselves first. First, yeah. first nearby then reaching back to the Baroque 
sometimes back to the pre-Baroque. Yeah. Uh, in in some ways, Renaissance and medieval music were also well, that makes sense because there's so much more clarity in that music, in a sense, compositionally. Yeah. And, and I think the American sound is. I mean, it's very I think we American composers. But... I also think we American composers got our romantic music from the films. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. And, and so I. Or are still writing for them. And yeah. I, I when I would listen to Brahms, I didn't get it. I said, huh. I already know this music from movie music. And it took me a while before I realized, no, he isn't doing the same thing at all. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've had now the opportunity to teach Brahms and Schumann, mm. who's a huge, huge favorite of mm -hmm. mine, and get inside of, of the romantic music and uh, appreciate how they relate to Beethoven, obviously, mm -hmm. and then uh, get some kind of continuity. But we all come to things in our own order, and composers aren't required to like everything that's in the history books. They're supposed to like what is useful to them and ignore what is not. Um, anybody who tries too hard to be Catholic is probably going to limit their own creativity. That's not actually a useful <laughs> way to think from a creative standpoint. It's a good thing for a pedagogue, but luckily I've not had to be a pedagogue of that sort. I would, this is great. This is great. Um, I'm going to sort of uh, get us back back to the yeah. cycle. Um, you spoke just a little bit earlier about, just very briefly about how they were conceived as a group. Yes. Can you talk just a little bit more about um, if there's a narrative and um, whether you would be willing to have them excerpted in performance or, I mean, it's clear that they have an underlying theme, but what was the conception there? The conception of Wasting the Night is certainly that it is a little narrative, but people have definitely excerpted them, and I'm happy to have that happen. Really, it's not a problem. Every song is a song. But there are certain harmonies that run through. The accompaniment notes of the first three songs are identical. The first in, and third have the same opening. Right? Have literally the yeah. same no opening, yes. But even Recuerdo and... and the I Shall Forget You, which is the fourth one, uh, have the same chord yeah. running in, in so they, they do literally quote their accompaniments. Furthermore, so it's sort of a musical memory? Kind yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's, yeah. it, it is so that when we get to I Shall Forget You, what we remember is the recuerdo. Uh, what, you know, we, we're trying to forget. Uh, well, that is, um, no, I mean, Time Does Not Bring Relief is in number four. That's where we're trying to forget. Uh, and it remembers Recuerdo in the accompaniment only. The other thing that it does is that the piano part up high quotes the melody of I Shall Forget You. Uh, so that's a little bit of an opera technique or something like that, where the voice goes into something like recitative down in a low register, and the melody is covered by, by the piano up a couple of octaves, remembering the last song, which was a confidence that we would be forgetting the person and the song that we're mm -hmm. singing at the moment is of the situation that we're not able to forget. What I really love in the last couple of pieces is this sense of apathy, I guess, that she creates um, towards a present partner and longing, that sort of yes. balance between what you can't have and what you have at the moment. Right. Um, Right. The last, song, really, yeah. the last song is called Betrothal, yeah. um, which is, it, it 
extremely ironic title, uh, as she admits that she's in love with somebody else, even though yeah. she's agreeing to marry this guy. And the apathy or her willingness to just shut down her feelings and go on in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, and she prefers that to, as she says, rather than waste the night in wanting a, cool, a cruel, dark head. And that's the title of, of the set, is Wasting the Night, because we do waste the night constantly. That's just the human condition of all of us. And, you know, I'm, I've been happily married for many years. Uh, and when this set was first premiered, my wife looked at me and said, is there something you're not telling me? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I said to her, excuse me, we never forget these things. <laughs> it can be completely in the past. You have, we, all of us have access to these feelings. You get into a poem like this and we have total access to it emotionally at any time. There's no problem in doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to worry about the present, but it's certainly this vivid memory. Of course. I would love to have a listen to all three of these songs in a row to get a good Great. sense of the continuity. Um, here once again, Susanna Phillips, Donald Berman.
I find these three songs to be incredibly moving. Um, the line that, the line, what did I, I'd make a man a good wife, sensible and still. That line just kills me. Yeah, the alliteration is is a, is a killer. Yeah, yeah, a sort of dulled emotion, for lack of a, a better expression. Oh, yes. Before we go, it would be a crime not to talk a bit about our performers. Susanna Phillips is a rising superstar. She's right now performing Donna Anna and Don Giovanni at the, at the Met. Uh, she was also featured in an issue of Vogue magazine. Uh, her website is www.susannaphillips.com. That's Phillips with two L's and two N's and not an H at the end if you're <laughs> keeping score. Uh, Donald Berman is a pianist who specializes in music of living composers. He's performed in a lot of the major venues across the US, Europe, and Middle East. He is also a professor and director of several organizations. You can find his website at www.donaldbermanpiano.com. Scott, I would like to thank you so very much for agreeing to talk with me well, Martha, thank tonight. you. Uh, I know our listeners are going to be thrilled with this. And as always, I need to thank our phenomenal producer, Matthew Principe. If not for him, we would all be wasting the night away many, many more hours trying to figure out how the digital magic happens. Uh, let's take one last listen to the final piece, my favorite, uh, The Haunting Betrothal. Thanks for listening to Sparks and Wiry Cries. I'm your host, Martha Guth.
Make a man of 